Thank you for joining us today on Geezers of Gear, episode number 69. Today's podcast is brought to you by Martin Professional, who is proud to announce a new era of performance, the ERA Performance Range, offering a powerful, cost-effective solution for entertainment and rental applications. Designed to fulfill the demand for a bright, compact, all-in-one profile solution, the lightweight ERA Performance fixtures offer high-output LED engines and a wide array of features. The new features deliver maximum value in three different sizes and output levels, covering everything from the smallest stages to the largest live productions and events. The feature-rich ERA performance fixtures meet the current popular demand for a compact and powerful, fully-featured moving head, capable of serving multiple roles. All three models feature full CMY color mixing and separate color wheels, plus an iris for beam adjustment and a full curtain framing system. Fixed and rotating gobo wheels loaded with user-favorite gobos from the renowned Mac range, offering a wide variety of effects, especially when combined with the included prisms and frost filters. Additionally, the ERA 600 and 800 performance feature variable CTO for color temperature adjustment. Learn more about this new ERA at Martin. The Martin ERA 800 Performance, ERA 600 Performance, ERA 400 Performance CLD, and ERA 400 Performance WRM, as well as the full line of Martin Professional Lighting Solutions at martin.com. Geezers of Gear is also brought to you by GearSource and the company's new Text for Gear platform. Once you've joined, you will receive a text each week with an exclusive opportunity to purchase a single listing well below market prices. To sign up, just text the word GEAR to 866-669-GEAR, and you'll enjoy the simplest, fastest, and cheapest way to access exclusive opportunities to own the latest gear. Well, hello there, and thanks again for joining us on episode 69, and welcome to 2020. Wow, here we are. Somebody said to me a couple days ago that, do you realize we're on the 20th anniversary from the millennium? And uh, that kind of made me think, wow, that's been a lot of years for what feels like a very short time, so bizarre. But yeah, welcome again to 2020. Welcome to Geezers of Gear. And very first and foremost, I want to bring up a change that I am making to the podcast, which uh, will not really impact anyone, but I wanted to bring it up anyway. So the big thing for me is instead of a uh, sort of constant co-host format, I want to go to a format where we bring in guest co-host. Let me say that again. I want to bring in guest co-hosts. And the reason behind that is we've actually had a few co-hosts on, and many of you have probably heard those episodes, and um, I just, I kind of find it more interesting. I like to be able to bring in an expert on audio if we're talking to an audio person on a particular podcast. I want to bring in uh, 
uh, DMX expert if we're going to talk to somebody about control platforms or control protocols. And so I certainly am not an expert in technology, and my goal is to bring in technology people to help co-host the podcast. So that is really the format we're going to go to. And um, so what you will see is you will see sometimes two co-hosts with me, sometimes one, sometimes none. And um, I will try and base it based on who the guest is, what we're going to be talking about, and just what I think is going to be interesting. So please, you know, keep sending comments. I know that people have been amazing to me and have been uh, very open and willing to offer comments and suggestions. And so every day I get emails from people or texts or, you know, Facebook messages or whatever, smoke signals, you know, carrier pigeons. And um, you're giving me ideas for either future guests, and many of those actually work out, and uh, many of the guests that you hear on this podcast have come through um, suggestions, not just suggestions, but also introductions to people through people who listen to our podcast. So I appreciate that very much, and I want to keep that coming because... Um, I don't know everybody and even the people I know, sometimes I don't necessarily have a relationship with them or a contact to them so that I can reach out to them. And there's, there are several guests coming up who are massive guests, uh, which I won't mention any names cause I don't want to jinx it, but there are some big time guests coming up and there are some that we've already had in the past, including people like Doc McGee and Pat Morrow and on and on and on just a huge list of people, um, who have uh, been brought to me by other people. And so again, keep it coming. I do appreciate it. I also appreciate, I, I actually got a, uh, into a text conversation with someone in Italy this morning who listens to our podcast religiously and was giving me some suggestions on how to format some certain things. Um, also talking about the guest host uh, sort of format, which I think is going to be wildly popular. So Again, keep the ideas and suggestions and emails and texts and everything coming because I do appreciate it. I don't know everything here and I I certainly am trying to do a good job, but I kind of feel like the, you know, the flag carrier for an entire industry at this point. So I don't want to screw it up. So please feel free to reach out. The best way to reach me is by email, geezers at gearsource.com, or you can send a Facebook message. You can uh, if you know my phone number, give me a call or text me. I'm not going to publish it out here on the on the uh, podcast, but um, you know, don't be shy. Keep reaching out. So, some of the things I wanted to talk about this morning were: first of all, I was reading about Bandit, uh, Bandit Lights, of course, which uh, was, I believe, founded by Michael Strickland, but certainly he's the boss. And um, Bandit seemed to kind of be quiet for a few years. I know they were still very, very busy. They're a popular touring company and uh, based out of Nashville, but they also have offices in Knoxville, and I believe they still have one in London and other places. But um, great company. I've done business with them personally for almost 30 years. and um, But apparently they're in massive growth mode right now, and in their own words, they are in an explosive but controlled growth phase which is a very good term that I am going to, I've actually written it down and I'm going to remember it for the future for my own use. And uh, so you might hear me repeat that when I'm talking about some of our own businesses, but um, an explosive but controlled growth phase. uh, They claim that they've had the biggest 2019 uh, of any year. So 2019 was a banner and a record year for them. 
and that 2020 is going to continue to see the company grow. Um, in addition, they are adding 80,000 square feet to their Nashville location. And so um, I haven't been to their Nashville location in probably 10 or 15 years. So I couldn't tell you how big it is today, but let's assume that's roughly doubling the size of their Nashville location, which is tremendous. I mean, that's completely outrageous. I guess Bandit is very, very busy. And we all know Nashville is kind of the new sort of uh, the new L.A., I guess, of the music business or of the, the sound and lighting business, the live business. And uh, so Nashville is a very, very important market. Bandit has been in the Nashville market probably since before anyone has. And uh, so congratulations to Michael and to his team at uh, Bandit. I look forward to seeing them grow and uh, continue to compete on a, on a global basis. So congratulations. Good. There you go. There's my uh, round of applause. Another uh, company or individual who reached out to me was the founder and CEO of a company called Constellate. Constellate. Constell, C-O-N-S-T-E-L-L, and number eight attached to the end of it. Fancy name. And then their product is also a fancy name. It's K-L-S-T-R. And I believe you can read about it at www.klstr.tech. And it is pronounced Cluster. And so this was in response to a conversation that we had on a prior podcast talking about uh, DMX getting a little long in the tooth and and how it's going to be replaced and the different protocols and languages and uh, ways to communicate with these light fixtures that are out there today, including, uh, you know, Ethernet and others. And um, so they've got a very, very interesting uh, solution <clears throat> which is based on having uh, you know some sp- sort of special board or circuitry built into the light fixture itself. And then that light fixture, from what I understand, is capable of receiving and sending pretty much any protocol, and it figures out what it's receiving and sending. And it basically, as soon as you plug it into anything, it raises its hand and says, here I am, and uh, promotes RDM technology and everything else. So It sounds really interesting. Anyways, he reached out to me and said, you know, we've got this great new technology and we're pushing very hard to help uh, kind of create the next wave of communicating with these very complex lighting fixtures and lighting consoles. And so we are going to talk again. I'm, I'm going to try and bring this individual onto the podcast and we can hear sort of his solution and hear a little bit about what he's doing. And then, of course, we usually get the counterpoint to that when somebody else comes on and goes, you know, that guy's full of shit. And, um, you know, here's the real truth. But I have no reason to believe he's full of anything. I mean, he sounds legit. The product, uh, I don't believe is done yet. I think they're showing it at, uh, uh, at the, um, show in Germany next month. And so, you know, let's see where that goes. Cluster, K-L-S-T-R dot tech. And so another response I got from email was uh, from Nils. And so as you know, Nils was on recently uh, with his drone company. And um, so, you know, Nils basically wasn't really rebutting or, or arguing with anything that had been said. Um, he was really just kind of agreeing with us a little bit. And again, his company's called Fergero, of course. 
So Nils, Nils was, uh, I guess, hearing us talk about, you know, the fact that pricing needed to come more down market and that pricing like the model that had been developed by Intel for these drone shows was kind of outrageous and needed to, you know, just kind of evolve into something that was more accessible to the rest of the market that are not billionaires or, you know, that are not Disney or, or uh, uh, Apple computers or whoever who can afford to pay for a million plus dollar drone show. And so what he said to me really was that um, the market does need to head into a much more realistic uh, pricing range for drone shows, and that is happening, and that's what he's pushing very, very hard to do. But that there will always be different segments for sort of, let's call it the pro and the backyard user uh, for drone shows. So we talked on the podcast about a, a backyard, you know, basically the ability to grab an iPhone and, and launch 10 drones up in the air and have them do really cool stuff and wow your your uh, you know, your housewarming party or whatever it is, your kid's birthday party, and be able to create something really, really cool with 10 or 20 small drones and run it right off your iPhone. And that whole package might cost you, you know, $1,000 or something, or maybe it costs $5,000 and people rent it out for birthday parties. But um, the idea is that there will be sort of a, a consumer market like that, the backyard market, and then there will be this pro uh, market which is where Nils resides and where Intel currently, even though their pricing is out to lunch, but that's where they reside today. And, you know, don't get me wrong, Intel have done some incredible things to bring attention to this um, technology and to this whole drone show segment of the business. But um, it just really, really needs to change and it needs to come much more down market. And that's what Nils is doing. So I've actually sent Nils some... Uh, some leads, I guess, some people who are interested in pursuing drone shows. And, um, you know, he's been talking to some of those people. So I really hope that works out. Nils is a great guy, and I'd love to see this be another huge success for Nils, and it looks like it's headed that direction. So that's a great thing. Um, and I really think that that's all I wanted to talk to you about. The only other thing is, uh, on a self-serving note with GearSource, you may notice that we've added a lot of people to the company recently uh, a new marketing director, and I believe four new business development people, uh, one based in Eastern Europe, based in Poland, um, one based in Nashville, uh, one based in New York, and actually only three recently. So we're adding a fourth one. We're actually in the process of talking to some people in the West Coast. We want somebody in California or Nevada. And there's a big reason we're adding all these people right now. Part of the reason is because we are advancing our technology in a very big way. Uh, over the past couple of years, we've been investing huge money into our platform. And this year... So internally, we've got a working model called 3.0, GearSource 3.0, and this year we'll, we, we will be launching GearSource 3.0, which will uh, completely rev revolutionize what we're doing, but will also change the way people sell used gear. And so we're really, really excited about it. I'm not overstating it. We have spent a ton of money and years in development. So we started just a couple of years ago actually developing it, but we started con conceptualizing it and and you know, really 
cooking or baking this thing probably six or seven years ago. So this has been an evolution long in the making, and um, we're really, really excited about it. So we're starting to staff up. We're starting to kind of change the face of our organization. Um, if you want any help getting to know the people that you're supposed to be doing business within GearSource, feel free to reach out to sales at GearSource. You can reach out to me, uh, Marcel at GearSource. Um, or, you know, just pick up the phone and call us and just say, hey, I'm in wherever. Who should I be dealing with now? And we're happy to, to deal with you on that. So without further ado, I do want to introduce you to our next guest today. And uh, Andrew Dunning has a company in uh, Nashville again called Landrew Design. And Andrew specializes in the church market. And to be honest, I don't know that there's anybody better in that market for designing and creating and executing on a lighting installation for some of these massive, massive churches. So um, loads of experience in designing for touring acts in that market, and then also, you know, obviously for the fixed installations inside the churches. So welcome, Andrew, to Geezers of Gear. So good morning, Andrew, and thank you for joining us on Geezers of Gear. It is now episode, I believe, 69. So thank hey, you. Good for morning. Coming. Yeah. Uh, so you're in Nashville right now, I guess, right? So it's like, what, nine o'clock in the morning? Yes, it is. Bright and early. Great. So um, you're, you're an interesting cat that I've been looking, looking forward to talking with because um, I know of a lot of these larger... Uh, sort of faith-based um, or church projects that are happening tend to fall under your world, and you've really kind of uh, uh, eked out a specialty here. So I, I'm really looking forward to hearing how that all happened, and and you know just some of the stuff that you're working on today, uh, etc. And you know really just figuring out some of the differences between you know what we'll call secular projects and uh, faith-based projects, I guess. Sure. And uh, I think you'll know a little bit about that topic. So, um, first of all, uh, where how did you get started in this? Like, did you was your education um, based on theater? Did you start out like as a young kid going, "I want to get into theater"? What was it that inspired a career in uh, lighting and lighting design? Well, I'm I'm a tall person. And the assumption was when I was in junior high, you're going to be a basketball player. And I'm about as coordinated physically as a soap dish. <laughs> so that really wasn't my thing, but I had a high school or a junior high teacher who was part of the local IA. Okay. And she was also the director of the theater in our junior high. And she said, hey, would you like to come and help do scenery and lighting? And I said, sure, I can use tools. Yeah, plus you don't need ladders. So, pardon? You don't need ladders. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> you were the only guy that could reach the truss. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my first foray, if you will, under her wing, um, I ran the lighting, which was a, a big panel board to the side of the stage. I helped paint scenery, and I also had a a small role in the play. Okay. So I would get all costumed up, do the makeup, run the lights, run out, do my scene, pop back into the lighting control. 
Oh my goodness. So you were like at some sort of front of house location dressed in costume. No, this was a, 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 uh, a big handle panel. Oh, at the side of the stage. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. You said that. Wow. Well, that's multitasking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I realized that that was probably a bit of a stretch, but yeah. you know, I was you in junior high. I was like, sure, I can do that. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned the, uh, the sort of, um, uh, I don't know, the generalization or, or uh, stereotype of a tall kid because my son has this problem. My son is 15 and he's 6'3 right now. And, um, you know, he's constantly being pulled through school or friends or whatever to play sports. And we've tried everything. You know, I'm Canadian, so we tried hockey. We've tried uh, soccer. We've tried football. And, of course, we tried basketball. And I'm a bit of a go-all-the-way kind of guy. Like, I don't like to do anything halfway. So when we got him into basketball, we hired a guy who was a former NBA Europe player. Very, very good guy and very good trainer and coach. And after about three months, he came to me and he said, Marcel, you're a nice guy. I don't mind continuing to take your money, but you know, your kid's no good. Basically he's, he's got no passion. He's got no talent. He's got no time for it. You know, he just, and, and my son's a racing driver. So he's, uh, you know, he's very passionate about racing. He's very, he's been a driver since he was six years old. And so that's what he loves to do. And as much as I try to get him into something that his height lends a little more, uh, uh, you know, support to, um, it's just, you know, you got to take what you've got when it comes to passion and talent and all of those things. So I'm glad you found yours. It was interesting. I pursued the basketball thing just because that was the expectation. Right. But that just wasn't my thing. Yeah, that's what tall kids are supposed to do. But aren't you like blonde haired and pasty white guy and all that kind yeah, of stuff? Yeah, pretty much. Too? Yeah, so there's there's only a few of those out there. Um, how tall are you? Uh six six. Oh, okay. Yeah. So about what my son's gonna grow into, I guess. Um, which I don't yeah, even know. Yeah, I get on an airplane and the flight attendant asks, So how tall are you? And I say five eighteen. <laughs> yeah, well you are. Yeah. So, um, so anyways, you're, you're in junior high school and you're lighting the school play and helping out the, the, what was she a drama teacher? She was an English teacher. Oh, okay. And she was just responsible for the, the plays. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so how did that, uh, how did that continue on? How did the next step happen? Um, it, it kind of took two forks. One, um, I was part of a small church and we didn't really have production to speak of. Okay. But when there was something special, whether it was a holiday service or a sermon illustration that needed some production elements, I ended up taking care of some of that. Even as a young kid, you're bringing in speakers or extra lights or things. Yeah. Um, and And then going on to high school beyond that, we had a nice, um, 1600 seat theater. And wow. I started uh, sort of as a general stagehand employee, a volunteer. Um, this was the kind of room where a lot of uh, small touring acts would come in. And although I was there as a, basically an assistant rep of the venue, I would end up following the, the lighting folks around for the day. Right. 
you know, asking questions, watching what they did, et cetera, et cetera. So you had like a pat, you had a passion towards obviously, you know, the production of the show and you, you mentioned sound and lighting and whatever needed to be brought in, but probably lighting kind of really pulled you because of the creativity from it. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Similar to yeah, me. It's, it's, lighting's an interesting collision of both technology and art. Yeah. And that just kind of fits you know, the way that I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then what? Um, so now you're so working, doing, you're basically volunteering at the church. and you're volunteering at my church, um, working you know, as much as a you know, 16, 17-year-old kid could in, a, in the theater. Yeah. Um, you did a lot of that kind of thing. Um, once I got through high school, there was a small local band, and I would go out as their lighting guy, um, which I won't even use the... The, the, the label lighting designer, because this was, you know, build cans out of stovepipe and floodlights. Yeah. Well, that's what a lighting designer was back then. I mean, it's, it's amazing how many, <laughs> you know, we talked with uh, Paul Dexter. I don't know if you know who Paul Dexter is. Yes, but, I do. Yeah. So Paul Dexter, you know, who's, who's gone on to a very successful career as a rock and roll lighting designer. Um, but his first shows, he made lights out of pineapple cans. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, where some of this innovation came from. And, you know, I remember, and so I'm going to cross paths a little bit here, you know, when you say you started out in the church and stuff. So going to church with, with, uh, with my family when I was a young kid, I don't know, 11, I think I was 11 years old or something, 12 maybe. And um, there was a, a little... Uh, note posted on the wall for a band, a band that was looking for a singer. And so I fancied myself a singer at the time, you know, I wasn't, but you know, I could sing along with albums and stuff. So I thought I'm going to go try out for this thing. And lo and behold, I got the gig and it was really interesting because it was a rock band, but the manager of the band was a Catholic priest and the rehearsal space was in the basement of the church. And, oh, wow. And so to, quote, pay for this rehearsal space, the band had to play a gig every Saturday night in the church that was called the Rock Mass. And the, the priest's um, assistant was a German lady who was taking these German Christian rock songs and converting them over to English, because this was even before any of that sort of Christian rock genre happened in this country. And so she converted all these German songs over to English. And every Saturday night, we, we you know, instead of going into normal hymns, um, the breaks would be our band playing these rock songs that were pretty heavy. And so Saturday night was standing room only in the church. It was all young kids and everything. And we went on to become, you know, a secular, uh, a band that, that was uh, relatively successful in the local um, circuit, I guess, and playing high school dances and community centers and things like that. But we played most Saturday nights in the church. Wow. Bizarre. Huh? I love that story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then the terrible side of the story, you know, because the Catholic church tends to, to, uh, we won't get into the politics of the Catholic church, but, um, the, and I don't even remember what he's called, but let's say the regional boss guy of priests, um, got, got word of what we were doing and and uh, didn't like it. He was an older guy and rock music was the devil and all of this kind of stuff. 
And so they uh, stopped us. And so there was this, this huge petition that started of people that wanted to get us restarted. And by now, we were just kind of ready to move on. We were upset. My mom was really upset because she was a very uh, devout Catholic. And so, you know, that was the end of that. But it was a really fun run while we did it. So, um, so I, you know, then you went on to college. And I, 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 I kind of knew at that point I wanted to do something with live production, more than likely lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, at that point, I didn't know enough to know what questions even to ask. Mm-hmm. So for a maybe two semesters, I was a radio TV major. Okay. Um, and basically, I had a ball. I learned how to run a switcher, learned how to do lighting. I learned all the hands-on stuff, and then when the theory stuff started, I got bored. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like um, me. <laughs> I would have done the exact same thing. I, I took a pilot's license, and as soon as I got to the ground school, I quit. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not one for, for that stuff. So I did a couple of semesters of that. Then I tried a semester of industrial studies because I thought I could learn about power. Yeah. That would be cool. And then I got bored with that. Um, what and school? then for the balance of my school career, I was a, uh, a theater major. What, what school were you in? The University of Wisconsin at Platteville. Okay, okay. So in, you became... in the southwest corner of the state, probably about 20 miles from Dubuque. Oh. So you um, finally found your way into, into theater, and you, know, you knew that's what you wanted to do. And so... During college, while you were a theater major, were you working as well? Yes. Yeah, I was. Um, the campus had a you know a production um, team, I guess you'd call us, um, who did all the production stuff around campus. I did a little bit of that. There was a a local band. Um, I went out with a buddy and did a little bit of that. Um, I also partway through my college career got hooked up with a production company from the other side of the state and started doing, uh, you know, smaller concerts with them on the weekends. Yeah. Did you already um, know, even did you, of, did you already know at that point though, that, that your career was going to sort of follow faith-based projects or did that happen? Later? I don't know that I was even answer, asking that question at that point. Right. You were just you were just following your passion for lighting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was definitely into you know the Christian music at the time, um, but I I wasn't smart enough to ask that question. It was a hey, this band needs an LD. I'll go do that. Yeah. Well, um, I- and later on in, in in the college life, in working with that production company, we started with. Um, with a band who's actually doing a little bit of touring. And so it wasn't alien for me to do like a three or four day weekend, um, you know, carry my homework with me, right? You know, do several shows with them, do my homework on the, we had, a, we were living in an RV at the time then uh. get back Monday or Tuesday morning and jump back into classes. Wow. Nice. Nice. So you graduate. And then what? I uh, graduated, and whereas the bulk of my fellow graduates were doing the 
interview and coat and tie thing. Um, I want to say a week after I graduated, I did my first tour. Oh, wow. And, and how did you get that? Was that through the, that the, same the production same company? small uh, production company. Do we know uh, them? Are they the still tour? around? Not as a production company. Oh, okay. So who was that with? What, what band? Anyone we'd... The name of the band was Blood Good. Oh, so they're a, they're a heavy rock band, I'm guessing. Like a yeah, they were heavy um, Christian rock. The definitely heavy, um, definitely Christian. Um, named after I think the the bass player's last name, and okay. I believe these days he's a uh, full time pastor. Oh wow, that's interesting. And but so that, that tour was the band lived in an RV, and they had a follow car. Uh, we as the production team had a van and a, uh, uh, a step truck. Huh. And so we were a little caravan, you know, traipsing around the country, you know, five bucks a day per diem. <laughs> and that was, that was pretty early in the, in the sort of Christian rock era, right? Because I remember, like, when was this? Was this early, mid-80s? This was, this would have been mid-80s. Okay. Um, because I was, uh, out of being a musician by then, but I owned a, a music store, this sort of rock and roll guitar shop in, in Calgary, Canada, where I, where I lived. I, I actually worked for the music store and then ultimately went on to own it. Um, but Striper, like mid eighties, I guess, was just really starting to hit their stride and, and they had gotten pretty big. And to be perfectly honest, when I first started listening to Striper, I didn't even realize that they were a Christian band. <laughs> you know, I just, uh, sure. I just kind of liked how they sounded and, and, uh, their look, whatever, but it wasn't as visual back then. Cause we didn't really like at the time, I don't even think we had MTV yet and, or it was just coming in. Um, you know, it wasn't all about visual. It was more about the album and the album cover and, you know, so you wouldn't have really known that much about them, right? They weren't like real in-your-face uh, Christian rock, even though the lyrics certainly um, were were very well, Christian. I would say, I mean, yeah, this, this is the exact same era. Yeah. Same era. Everybody wanted to be Striper. Yeah. Um, I actually saw Striper probably a half dozen times. And while it wasn't preaching per se... Um, whereas other bands might've been throwing, um, your guitar picks and things into the audience at right. one point in the show, the striper guys came downstage and were throwing Bibles into the audience. Right. Right. Yeah. I remember that. And so, um, you know, and, and really like one of my friends actually was a, was a huge striper fan and ended up going to work with them as, uh, as a monitor guy. Um, and one of the things he told me is you know, if you didn't know they were a Christian rock band before you toured with them, once you were out on tour with them, like, I guess the rules were very strict, the backstage rules and the, what you could and couldn't do. And, you know, they were, they were, uh, they were pretty, you know, bolted down as far as, you know, a touring metal band, I guess was concerned. Sure. And so it, it went with their opening acts as well. Whoever was opening for them also kind of had to follow the same rule set. Yeah, I, I totally get it. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, I guess Petra was the other fairly big one around that time. They were a little bit after Striper, I think. 
Oh, Petra was actually around a long time before Stripe. Oh, were they? Oh, I guess they just yes. didn't get big yet. I, I think Striper sort of rode a wave there, maybe. Or maybe they were big and I just didn't know about them. Because again, yeah, I wasn't. Petra was one of the bands that when I was working in the high school theater, who would come through from time to time. Yeah. So were you a fan of those bands? Is that part of what got you into sort of that genre? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, cool. And so you're out touring with uh, Blood Good. And then uh, how did, how did uh, were you just a tech or a, or a do-everything LD, roadie, tech, bus driver? Everything that had to do with lighting was my responsibility. Okay, okay. So it was probably... Design it, maintain it, set it up, take it down, help drive the truck. Yeah. And it's probably, you know, a couple dozen park hands and, and some, some, some trees, right? There probably wasn't, you weren't using motors yet or... No motors. This was all, I think we ended up with about 60 pars, um, all Raylight kits. Yeah. And uh, some old genies and antenna tower. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, you know, all that stuff that now with all the safety in line we're not supposed to do, I pretty much did. Yeah. Yeah, well, things have changed a little bit <laughs> from the mid-80s, yeah, for thankfully sure. thankfully so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, a lot of... Uh, well, I mean, there's some things that I wish hadn't changed, but for the most part, uh, from a gear standpoint, things have definitely got better, safer, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, by now, probably, you're out on your first tour, and I'm, I'm guessing you're thinking, wow, this is really, you know, what I want to be doing, right? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I had no concept that five bucks a day per diem was not a lot of money. Yeah. I was just happy to be there. Yeah. So how long did you tour? I did that uh, probably four or five years. Okay. Um, you know, Blood Good, some other similar size acts. Um, again, continued to be, <laughs> excuse me, uh, more faith-based. Yeah. And then... Uh, towards the end of one of those tours at that level, I got a call from the tour manager for a, a group called DC Talk. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the funny thing about that story was I had been invited when I was a little bit younger to one of their shows. I, actually, they were the opening act. And I'd shown up late because I didn't really want to hear, you know, basically watered down rap. Yeah. And so I got a call from their tour manager and that led to about a 10 or 12 year relationship with wow. them. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I grew to really, really like the guys. I learned a lot. Um, learned a lot about touring, how to, how to work with people, um, you know, how to show people grace when they do really stupid things. Yeah. Which, yeah, I was the king of. Maybe so. after the podcast, you can teach me that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to learn that. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty blunt when it comes to that kind of stuff. What did you just do? Are you some kind of idiot? You know, but uh, yeah, not everyone takes yeah, that I'm, really I'm well. I'm thankful that in my learning that when I was younger, I had people around me who were a little bit kinder than I probably could have been. So yeah. I'm profoundly thankful for them. Yeah. 
Yeah. So what, what kinds of venues were you doing with DC Talk? Where, where you are now probably getting into much larger venues. A, a, a DC Talk tour would play everything from um, large arenas to theaters, to churches, to, um, uh, you know, like a lot of other bands, we did the, the summer festival and theme park uh-huh. runs and everything in between. So was that strictly faith-based stuff or, or were they touring with secular acts as well as part of a, like a festival? Faith-based. Okay. So if, if you were doing a festival, it was a faith-based festival. It wasn't, yes. you know, uh, like some summer rock festival. I think there was festival. maybe one or two exceptions, but overall it was, they were all faith-based festivals. Okay. Okay. So obviously by now you know that, that your career is not only going to be in lighting, but it's going to be in faith-based lighting because yes. you're now part of that crowd. And I, from what I saw anyways, and I don't know if this is true and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's kind of a closed community in that um, if you're touring, you're going to look for someone who has done other faith-based acts. At a certain, at a certain level, yes. And at a certain level, no. Right. Um, I would say when you're, well, when the acts are a little bit smaller, it's a lot easier to do that. Yeah. You're, you're going to be looking for, for people who share the, the beliefs. Yeah. Um, as acts get larger, um, that becomes a lot harder to do. Right. Um, like with, with DC talk, they were, they were getting to a level where, um, you know, we were dealing with, you know, the, the big lighting and production companies of the time. Right. Right. You know, it was the, um, we were, uh, dealing with bandit and Obies and TLS and Claire brothers. Um, hmm. you know, they weren't little garage companies at all. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, even just the people like, you know, you're not going to hear of, uh, or, or I, I've never known, you know, the sort of mainstream designers to go work for faith-based bands and vice versa. It, they seem well, to kind of. I would of... say like there were some you know, Christian groups or entertainers of the time. Um, and you would see big names as designers. Right. Right. Okay. Um, that, that was not a, it wasn't common, but it was also not unheard of. Yeah. So, but when we're dealing with these companies, you know, you, you don't go to a Claire brothers or, um, you and an OBs and say, we need an all Christian crew. Right. You, you can't do that. But what you, what we could do is say, we would love for you to support, um, our tour, but here are going to be your behavior expectations. Yeah. Nobody's going to make you shave your head. Nobody's going to make you believe what we do, but well, and is you it, need to is represent it, us. Is it mostly based on like language and, and substance abuse and things like that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there are going to be sense. things, you know, the faith-based community are going to be sensitive <coughs> to things like language, um, smoking, alcohol, substance abuse, things like that. Yeah. Um, whether strictly theologically speaking, all those things are right or wrong is a different question. No, no. These I, are going to be things that are going to be sensitive to the community. Right. And I, I would expect that that's much easier today than it was in the 
late eighties, early nineties. You know what I mean? I, like I would to, say so. To get a crew out on a show today that, you know, are professional and dressed nicely and, and, you know, even look more professional, um, in the eighties and nineties would have been a lot tougher than today. I would think when we're much more used to corporate environments and corporate people being around and things like that. You know, I've, I've not thought of it, but now that you say it, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I can say to a, um, we've grown up a lot. Perspective vendor. We're doing a faith-based event. Your best approach is to think corporate. Yeah. Yeah. It's very okay, similar we to get a corporate that we go show. On. Yeah. Very similar to a corporate show, I would think. Yeah. So at some point you came off the road, uh, and I'm, I'm guessing or, or wondering if it's for the same reasons that most people would come off the road to get married and have a family. And, and because, Hey, I've done that for a certain number of years or whatever. Now I want to do something different. Is that what it was? It actually wasn't that intentional. Okay. Um, I got married the weekend before I started with DC talk. Oh geez. So my first, Hi, honey. Bye, honey. Years of marriage. <laughs> Pardon? Hi, honey. Bye, honey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, um, you know, first 10 years of marriage, it was nothing for me to be gone for six or eight weeks at a time. Yeah. I don't recommend it, but for us, it, it worked. Well, and if she knew um, that, if she knew that going in, then I guess yeah, it's a little Yeah, that's how we easier. met was through the, through the business. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but about the... Oh, I would say the early, the early two thousands, probably right after nine uh, eleven, um, DC Talk started backing off from doing full time touring. Okay, um, and about the same time, I had a, a friend who was working for a large church in Dallas who said, "Hey, you need to come help my church." And he would bug me consistently every time I'd see him. And although I'd grown up in the church, my perception of church production was pretty negative. Right. Yeah, but you know, was kinda, that was that Fellowship Church? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, again, I come from Western Canada, where my perception of church production would be pretty negative as well, because you know, it's usually, if anything, it's a few, you know, pars. Uh, you know, I mean, there's just nothing going on, really. There is no production. That's right. And that was my perception. Yeah, well, and that, that was my reality. But then when I started, like I, I was at Martin in the uh, early 90s and started seeing some of these plots come across where, you know, they were looking for dozens of moving lights. And, you know, it's like, what is going on with these churches? And then I saw Fellowship and I saw some other really large churches and I was blown away. Yeah, they were my first weekend with them. Um, was a full moving light rig. Um, they were controlling it with an MA uh, grand. Um, I took in DL2s, you know, and a catalyst server and, 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 and. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it really just turned my, turned my world upside down because I realized there are churches who are doing not just large, but high quality production you know, every weekend. It's not just Christmas or, or Easter. Well, fellowship, isn't it like 10,000 capacity or something? Like it's a huge. I want to say that main campus um, is maybe a little over 3,000. Oh, I thought it was bigger than that. 
it, it it's, it's been a while since I've been there, but no, you're I want right. to say we're in that three to 4,000 range. Right. That's still massive. And forgive massive. me if I'm wrong, but that's just yeah, what I remember. Still massive. So that opened your eyes to the fact that, you know, not only were some of these shows larger and had, had the budget to, to do these larger shows, but you could actually sort of scratch your itch for these big productions without touring. Correct. Yeah. And so did, you know, pardon the expression, but did a light go on where you were like, hey, you know, there's probably not a lot of companies that are really focused on providing lighting design and support and installation to these churches? Or did that come later? I don't know that there was ever a light going on moment, but I think it was definitely a gradual, just a very real sense of satisfaction that I can work at a high level. I don't have to sleep on a shelf. Yeah. And I can see my wife with more consistency than, you know, every now and then come home, do laundry or call her from a truck stop. Right. Right. Wow. So you just completely, did you have to quit with DC talk? Like, did you have to call a meeting and say, I'm sorry guys, I'm coming off the road and I'm doing this. No, it was a very natural transition. They were, um, they were coming off the road. And at the same time, the, the ability to work within the church was taking off. Nice. Which the, the funny or yeah, the funny part about that was the same week that DC Talk decided to come off the road, my wife and I bought our first house. Oh, my goodness. That's cool. So you're, you're going in to sign, basically sign your life away, and your bread and butter client, yeah, better you've got bread no and income. butter employer, just decided to stop working. <laughs> you've got no income. <laughs> Bingo. Guess what? Yeah, yeah I, can, I can report my past income so I can get the mortgage, but I have no <laughs> idea how I'm going to pay for it, sir. <laughs> So had you started your business yet, Landry Design? Like, were you official now? Yes. Yeah, that I've been working under the Landry Design name since uh, 91 or 92. Oh, okay, good. Good. And so what was, do you remember your first big project, uh, you know, from an installation standpoint? Or was, were you working design first and then got into projects and sales and stuff later? How did that work? Um, I wouldn't use the word installation. These were more of, um, longer term non-touring projects. Okay. And and I'm using that language because like fellowship, every time that they would do a sermon series change, they would totally change the design in the room. I see. So it's not touring. And it wasn't an install per se, but it's basically a touring rig that they owned. Okay. If that makes any sense. Of course, yeah. And so, um, so you know, I, I mean, one of the things I'm curious about is, like, when you're doing a church installation, when, when uh, you sell a job and um, you're now... I'm guessing the church wants you to use some of their people, which I believe are mostly volunteer people, right? Correct. And so that's got to present some challenges. It does. And probably more so 10 years ago than now, where people are probably a bit better trained now, because I know a lot of churches, 
of a certain size will have a proper tech director of some sort or a lighting person or a, they've got technology people within the church now, but um, still. Well, yeah, 10 or 15 years ago or for more, it was either all volunteers or a mixture of volunteers and uh, local stagehands they would hire. Right. And so uh, dealing with volunteers, you really are dealing with people who probably don't have much, if any, experience um, putting in or, or focusing or whatever it is you need them to do on the, on the lighting project, right? Right. Hmm. Yes. Some of them knew a great deal, but they knew what was within their four walls. Right. And some of them, they were just happy to help. Put me to work, teach me, off we go. And is there any liability in that? I mean, I guess not, because <laughs> they're volunteers working for the church. Nobody's going to sue anyone. So um, it sounds, a bit, think, it sounds I mean, challenging the, and scary <laughs> to me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you would see some, and just like, in a way, a lot like local theater, you'd see some churches who were very well-versed in safety and proper rigging and proper electrical, no problem at all. And then you'd see some who are kind of making it up as they go along, and you'd scratch your head at, who thought that would be a good idea? Right. But, you know, for the people listening here, they're probably thinking, oh, you know, a church, big deal. You're going to go in and hang, you know, four LED pars and, and a couple of moving lights. But some of these rigs are big, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's a, I mean this is going to date it, but my first you know, times with, with Fellowship, you know, we had DL1s, DL2s, um, the Martin Mac 500s and 600s, Xbox, Mac 2000s. Um, the predecessor to GT Truss. Yeah, I mean, you had... The real motors, the whole bit. You had a rig the size of something that would go into a live performance venue that has three or 4,000 seats, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, um, I mean, that's, that's a real lighting rig being installed uh, by people who are less than fully experienced to do that, right? So, sure. So... Um, and and so were you, were you never able to like bring in your own crew? Like, did did you? Is that something that gets addressed in the beginning? Like, we're going to need for every one volunteer, we need one of our own crew members or something like that, or was it just the way that it's done? No, it's just the way that it was done. I was hired exclusively as a designer slash consultant. So you're sort of the project manager, pointing and saying, "Hang that there, hang that there, put that over there." Um, they the. The fellowship at the time had a project manager, had a, a real production director. Okay. Um, so basically, I was working, you know, under his direction. Wow. Interesting. And so you did that, and then still said, "This is what I want to do in the future," because that had to be really challenging. I mean, it it certainly sounds like it would be. It was challenging, but the. The amount of personal satisfaction of that was I pretty guess. astounding. Yeah, I can understand that. I can understand that. And plus, you're working in an environment that you want to be in with people that you want to be around and, and that kind of thing. So how has that 
grown? Like, you know, what's your business look like today? Are you massively busy doing projects all over the place? And I'm guessing you're not doing any touring anymore or, or certainly not very much little to no touring. Um, doing the, the, the projects for fellowship within their walls turned into doing a lot of faith-based events around the States. Um, you know, men's conferences, pastors' conferences, things like that. Okay. You know, we would go into a large convention center and basically turn a big flat floor space into a theater for a week. Okay. Sort of um, like corporate theater, but, but faith-based, right? Very, that's a really good comparison. Yeah. Um, okay. And some of these, it's just like corporate life. Some corporations, when you do their events, it's very buttoned down. No haze, turn on the white light, don't touch it. Others, they want all the bells and whistles. Right. Church work or faith-based work is the same thing. Some churches, they want white light, don't touch it, and others want all the tricks you can throw. Right. And so... So these days, it's a mix of um, corporate work, faith-based work, and then I've also um, unexpectedly gotten into... Um, coding uh, tools for CAD software. So it's a, every week for me is a totally different week depending on what's going on. What, what does that mean, coding tools for CAD software? What, what's um, that about? I use, a, I use CAD software called Vectorworks. Of course, yeah. And Vectorworks has this idea built into it called a plug-in object. So it's like apps for an iPhone. Yes. Okay. But what what... What happens is when you click on an icon, instead of like using a symbol that is pre-configured that you can't change, code says build this device within the drawing. So build a video screen or a, or a lift of some sort or a PA. Okay. And so I got into generating that code that, that makes those objects. Oh, I see. And then you sell that back to CAD users or Vectorworks yes. users? Yeah, I've oh, licensed okay. it to Vectorworks uh, corporately. And then I've got about 1,600 users in, I think I'm at 36 or 37 countries now. Wow, good for you. So that's a part of your business now. Yes. Nice. Yeah, it started off as a, I, <laughs> I need these tools to make my day-to-day design life go better, to be more productive. And then I started realizing other, you know, other designers can use the tools as well. Yeah. Well, that's, that's sort of the perfect world scenario is when you develop something for your own use and then you realize other people want it too. And, yes. uh, you know, cause that kind of helps you to scale that project up and, and it makes it worthwhile to invest more time into making it even better because you've got somebody else paying for it. So great. Congratulations. That's really cool. Yeah. It ends up being a cycle in that, you know, other users invest in it. Yeah. So I've got some income, which inspires me to invest further. Yeah. You know, other users might come with an idea of, would you make this do this feature? Right. And I, I can do that. Oh, cool. So the tools improve, the tools evolve. Um, it's, yeah, it's become a viable part of my business. Good. Very cool. So back to, back to like your core business. Um, 
if I was to ask you, like, what are two or three main differences between uh, lighting secular versus faith-based faith-based projects? Sorry, it's early still, and I'm tripping over my tongue. Um, what are some of the biggest differences? I think the biggest differences that you'd probably notice are, are the more behind the scenes things, the more subtle things, um, things like behavior expectations, um, you know, t-shirts you, you would choose not to wear on a faith-based event, things like that. Yeah. Um, at the level where I'm working in a a well-done faith-based event is going to rival anything that you'd see in, um, you know, on broadcast, you know, your broadcast television or, or a good size tour these days. Yeah. Broadcast is a, is a pretty big deal, right? Like I know, uh, I've, I've worked with just a couple of local, like, uh, my son's school that he went to had a church that was in there every, uh, Wednesday night and Sunday, and they had asked us to come in through GearSource, my company. They asked us to come in and just see if we could help them. And so one of our local experts went in and took a look, and he went, man, these guys are doing broadcast stuff that's way above my head. We're going to have to bring in the experts. So, um, you know, they churches seem to really kind of uh, be pretty cutting edge when it comes to, you know, their, their visual and broadcasting capabilities these days. Oh, without question. Yeah. And part of it is, is the reality that a lot of um, churches are being broadcast on network television. The other variable that goes into that is a lot of churches have adopted what we call a multi-site model. Right. In that they might have a broadcast facility. You know, let's say it's in Atlanta, but several satellites around the states where the signal from the broadcast facility is broadcast in some fashion to those satellites. Right. Right. And those satellites, they're, they're projecting, um, the service from the other site, but not in terms of what you'd, what you'd see in a, as a basic camera cut, you would see basically a lockdown shot. And at the, at the receiving site, they'd be projecting that lockdown shot at full size. Okay. So it's like a simulcast. It's a live simulcast. Yes. Yeah, it's <laughs> a good analogy. It. Yeah. Or a good comparison. Yeah. So, so you get the illusion of pastor standing on stage teaching. Right, right. That's cool. And so that quality has to be high enough that the people at the receiving end don't feel like they're just watching it on a Yeah, on watching television. a video. Yeah, otherwise yeah. might as well go home and go on YouTube and watch it on video. That's right? exactly right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I can certainly understand the need for heavy broadcast equipment. And, you know, even from a lighting and sound standpoint, like I know when, when digital audio consoles first became a thing, um, GearSource, you know, we tend to sort of kind of be attached to the pulse of what's going on in the industry because all of a sudden people start selling things and you see prices diving and at the same time, you're hearing, well, you know, there's this new technology. <clears throat> and so 
when um, I remember when digital audio consoles first started coming out and we were having churches contacting us like crazy with PM 4000s to sell or PM whatever to sell. And we were like, what's going on here? And, you know, the more you dig into it, you realize that they're replacing those PM 4000s with, you know, whatever, a PM 1D or whatever it was. And uh, they seem to really be getting much more on the cutting edge where a church used to just kind of get a donation from somebody that was throwing out a bunch of old theatrical junk. Um, Now they actually, it's part of the budget and everything else, right? Oh, without question. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, the the production level where a lot of churches are working these days would rival pretty much anything you would see in yeah. a good size tour. Yeah. Now, when when we talk about, I guess specifically installations, because you said like your one off shows that you do are very much like corporate theater. I would guess it's very similar gear to what you would use on corporate theater. But when we talk about an install in a in a church, especially some of these larger state of the art facilities, what are some of the trends in gear, and and is there anything different than what would be trending in secular projects, for example? Like, are you using a different color temperature? Are you using different technology of any kind? Whereas in a um, let's call it a a secular theater or a normal theater, you might be using something slightly different. I would say, again, with the caveat that we're talking about a church functioning at a fairly high production level, yeah, they might even be beyond where theater is these days. Right. They're going to be more, more cutting edge where you might see technology changing in, in touring. Huh. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of church, a lot of new church buildings being built where there's not a dimmer in the, in the building. Right. So they're it's not technology, powered. they're not technology adverse. No, not by any stretch. Yeah. You know, it's all going to be power distribution and data distribution, assuming led or arc sources, you know, they're not, they're not even thinking about buying dimmers and lamp based fixtures. Right. Yeah, because I know even theater, like uh, even Broadway, for the longest time, and I think it's a little bit different today, but for the longest time, it was frustrating on the lighting manufacturing side because they were very slow to, uh, to adopt new technology. They were very conservative as far as, you know, it's got to be tried and true and it's got to be, you know, 20-year-old technology because that's what we're really accustomed to. And I'm certainly not, you know, putting down theater designers by any stretch because they're some, oh, of my, no stretch. No. Some, of, some of my favorite people. But um, I'm not sure exactly what the reason was behind it, whether it was, you know, from a reliability standpoint or just what you know or... Um, or the new technology just hadn't gotten to where they thought it needed to be, I think was the case in, in many situations. Yeah. And I think like with thinking about, you know, churches, if, if a, if a good team can recognize, you know what, a little bit more expense up front will mean we're not changing out lamps four times a year. Right will mean you can actually tune the color. You're not set. Um, will mean a lot less uh, heat generation. You, when a team starts looking at that, it makes a lot of sense very quickly to start changing your thinking. Right. 
Right. Are churches thinking about like green at all when, when you're doing Some a church? Some of them definitely are. Yeah. So when you're doing a, when you're doing a design or a, an install for a church, they're, they're actually looking at what the power consumption might be. Oh, definitely. Interesting. And have you gotten into, do you also get involved with like, uh, um, you know, the, I'm sorry, I forget the terms for the different parts of a church, but where all the people sit, what's that called? <laughs> where the, like the house, <laughs> so house lighting? The house is probably a fair, um, very little. <laughs> yeah. I might get involved if they want it, you know, lit for a camera. But like, but more often than not, you know, an architect's, um, you know, uh, Electrical engineers going to be dealing with things like house lights, but there are uh, there's there's um, you know you've got the ability to dim and change color you know along with your your MA console or whatever you can control your house lights very easily um, using either DMX or even wireless sometimes and I know yeah. I don't know if it's Elation or Acclaim but one of Elation's companies has uh, a new product that's a cylindrical uh, pendant meant for churches. Um, and, uh, there's the other company out of Texas who does the, uh, retrofit package for those lights. But, um, yeah, so I was just well, curious. You've got, you know, Chroma Q has a product like that. Um, light source North Carolina has a product like right, that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm just curious if, if you get involved in the house side of it as well. And, you know, because I know everybody is, is looking at energy savings now because it's so easy. You know, you can change, you know, your your 100-watt PARs or, or whatever they are, 150, 300-watt PARs even sometimes to a 75-watt to a or a 60-watt LED and, and save so much energy and heat and everything else. Well, and the selling and point for a church with, with that type of thing is not just the energy savings, the, the maintenance savings, but it's also when you can say to the church, we can also change the color of the room. Right. You know, their churches, a worship service is a very interactive experience. Right. And so if we're doing a real upbeat piece of music or if a sermon is very upbeat, you could change the color to, to enhance that. Yeah. Or if it's something more subdued, change the color and the intensity to enhance that. Right. So um, what are some of the, like the, <clears throat> if you think, Back to when you started, like when you first, and I think you said you you first started working with the actual churches in around 2003. Um, but if you think of the technology shifts, I think it would, if you were to look a little further back, obviously you'd get into moving lights and things like that, the major shifts in technology. But what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in gear for churches specifically uh, in the years that you've been doing this? I think just like everybody else in the industry, um, the change in light source, yeah, you know, from incandescent to arc to LED, I I think is probably the biggest shift. Yeah, um, the availability of cost-effective, remotely movable fixtures, right? I think has been a very pleasant shift. And, and when you combine the two, it allows you to to potentially use fewer fixtures 
that you can remotely focus. So not only can you tune the color, you can use fewer fixtures, less power, but I can now remotely focus instead of bringing in a crew with, you know, a pew kit on a genie with a guy 30 feet in the air. Right. Yeah, of course. Do you still, in your designs, are you still using any conventional lighting? Like, are you using any source fours or whatever? Or is everything pretty much, well, I think you said no dimmers and. I can't remember the last project that I did where I was working with, with dimmers. Right. Right. No, that makes sense. What for? What for? So let me ask you one more gear question here. So if, if you were uh, able to take control of the, the minds at all of these manufacturing companies and force them into doing a product for you, what is, what is something that hasn't been invented or created yet that you need? For me, the, the elusive product has continued to be, for lack of a better way of saying it, a remotely controlled Fresnel. Remotely controlled it's something Fresnel. I'm, I'm not needing a bunch of bells and whistles, a bunch of features. I need good quality, even coverage with beam shaping more than um, popping an oval in or um, zooming. And it's got good intensity so that I can work from, from longer distances. And that doesn't exist today? There are products I've found that approach it. Yeah. But I've not found the magic product that, that ticks all the boxes perfectly. Interesting. You know, there's usually a, man, it ticks all the boxes, but I can't get the color out of it the way I want to. Right. Or, man, it ticks all the boxes, but... Beam shaping is not quite there. Interesting. Well, I, I will let you know that, you know, all of the automated lighting manufacturers listen to my podcast. So um, the good news is that they will hear this and you may get a call from a couple of people who will say, hey, I heard you on that podcast. And by the way, we do have a product I'd like to send you a sample to look at. So I, and I would absolutely love to be proven wrong. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if you get a couple calls on that one. But uh, I, I, I will not. I will not shy away from prove, being proven wrong if I get another tool to put in my kit. Yeah. No, and, and I mean, that's a kind of a core item too, right? That's something that you would use on every job because it's, yes. it's not a special. It's like your, your base lighting package, you know, your foundation. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, um, you know, we talk a lot about some of the technology that is being created now and how it's much more subtle you know it's not as much where you know like yeah the shift to led that was a huge change in our industry that's that's a, a big giant techno technology leap uh for for our industry and when you went to things like automated framing shutters that was a big leap you know there there were big features that were becoming available in automated lighting but now we're down to making things more reliable more efficient more uh, lighter weight, smaller, brighter, you know, just kind of focusing on the peripherals more than the, you know, the, how many gobos does it have or how many colors can it produce or whatever. So it makes yeah, sense. And then that part of that trick is, I mean, 
it may not be the sexiest thing on the planet, but I don't, I'm not looking for, you know, content mapping across faces of fixtures. Right. Right. I'm needing a good quality light source. Right. After all, because what we do, it's about lighting, lighting people, lighting scenery. It's, it's not how many more effects can I generate? Right. Yep. You know, I can watch a video and just be wowed at all the effects and all the, the, the gags that are there. But if there's not good quality lighting that's part of it, to me, it's something that's lost. Well, but that's kind of why, like, I think the products that are most successful in this industry are the ones that become staples because they're just useful and reliable and you can use them in every single show. And one that pops in my head right now is like the Mac Aura. Um, you know, I don't love the fact that you look at it and you see pixels and, and different colors and things, but some people like that look, I guess. Um, but the Mac Aura still exists today, is still hot in rental inventories today, and it's still a very successful rental fixture because it's just, you know, it's a good, reliable workhorse of a light. Yet something like the Claypacky BI comes in, is really super hot for a year, and then kind of falls by the wayside because it's more of a, a gimmick, right? And so, and I would say taking your example of the Aura, um, I've been using the quantum washes quite a bit on my projects for right. the reasons you just cited. Yeah. Yeah. I can get a, it may not be a broadcast white, but I can get a, I can get decent color out of them. I can get a nice quality beam of light out of them. Yeah. I can, they're reliable. They're bright. Yeah. 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 No, it's a good solid fixture. And remarkably, we're sitting here talking about Martin, and Martin is the sponsor today on this episode. Oh. So <laughs> well, fantastic. You, there you go. Um, so, last thing I really want to get into a little bit here, and unless I've missed anything, you can tell me. But um, any, uh, we love when people are or companies are getting involved in charities or um, mentoring young people to come into the business. And I know those are both very separate topics, but I kind of pile them in together. And, um, you know, companies have done it in very different ways, you know, as far as mentoring, having actual education classes or doing outreach, going out into schools and doing presentations, showing them, hey, look at this amazing industry that you could become a part of. And, you know, certainly for you in the, in the faith-based community, having people take it from being a volunteer uh, sort of pastime or hobby to becoming an actual career could be an opportunity as well, I guess. But how do you get involved in either, uh, either of those topics, either, you know, some sort of a charity or, um, or mentoring young people coming into the business? Definitely involved in both. Good. And let's hit the, the, the mentoring question first. Um, I've seen that play out in two different ways. Um, one way, um, I'm a volunteer in my own uh, home church okay. and I lead the lighting team on, on our campus. Okay. And I've got, I believe six or seven volunteers on that team right now. My oldest team member is 75. And my youngest team member, I think, is 13 or 14 years Jeez, old. Jeez, wow. That is amazing. And I would say, of let's say I've got seven. Five of my seven are all between 13 and 17 years old. 
Wow. That is These awesome. These kids without me on campus can come in, turn on the rig, um, participate in and respond to uh, rehearsals. They can run services by themselves when it's all done, button everything back up to prepare for the next time. So do you have actual scheduled classes for them when you're sitting them down and saying, this is a lighting console, this is, you know, whatever? It's not a scheduled thing. It's more of an as needed. Okay. Okay. Um, like we just added a new uh, young man to our team. I think he's 13. Um, before he actually ran a service, I spent several Sunday mornings with him, either having him observe the operators or me sitting in the, in the audience pointing things out to him that I wanted him to see. But I wanted him to know why. You know, why did you choose that cue? Right. Why did we turn the, the room blue? The, those sorts of things. Right. And so do any of them ever raise their hand and say, Andrew, I really love this. I, I want to do this as a job or as a career. How can you help me? I've, we've not been with this particular team uh, long enough to know the answer to the question. Right. Um, my attitude right now is if any of them ever wanted to go into um, your lighting as a career, I will absolutely celebrate that and help them as much as I can. If they don't, but they can look back 20 years from now and say, you know what? An adult invested in me. Yeah, that's you know, really cool. In those years I spent with Andy, I learned how to be on time. I learned how to pay attention. You know, I learned some lifelong lessons. They may not be lighting specific, but wow, because this adult invested in me, I'm a better person. Yeah. Yeah, but maybe as... And I will celebrate that. Yeah. No, that's, <laughs> like crazy. that's amazing. And that's, you know, I'm 55 years old and I still remember people who taught me those types of things. Uh, even that priest who was, who was the manager of our band, you know, some of the life lessons that he taught me when I was 12 and 13 years old and a singer in a rock band, um, I remember to this day and I live by some of those today. So yeah, that's, yeah. that stuff's huge. And, you know, I would say that's for me week to week, that's very much part of my life. Um, very cool. The other side of that is I've had a client, um, that is a, a university where when we do live events, um, I'm assigned either I'm assigned to them or they're assigned to me, uh, six or eight students. Okay. And basically it's a, Andy, here are your students teach them something. Wow. So we will do things like, um, I'll teach them how to lay out a room. Here's a drawing, here's a disto, a tape measure, and some gaff tape. Interesting. Interesting. So stuff like that, well, okay, I've got them for a day, let's teach them how to do that. Well, because having a lighting rig there, and saying, you know, here's this, here's this, is much more complicated than it used to be. Because, you know, I know in the old days, you could go up to a desk that had faders on it and say, here's how I turn up my red lights. Here's how I turn up my blue lights. Here's how I turn up the yellow ones, you know. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit more difficult. It's a days. bit more complicated. Like, I can't even figure out how to turn lights on on a Grand MA console. So, you know, and I've been in the lighting business since the late eighties. And, uh, although I've never really been a, a lighting guy, I've always been on the sales side of things, but, 
Um, yeah, so that's really cool. I mean, that's... Yeah, so if one of those students shows an aptitude for an interest in lighting, instead of having a stagehand around the console for focus, I'll have a student do it. That's cool. has nothing to do with you trying to replace paid labor. It's a, I'm going to teach a student how to bring up a fixture on an MA, teach them how to maybe adjust a cue here and there. And that student feels like a million bucks. So he just learned something. Yeah. Yeah. He's got family members taking pictures of him and stuff. Look at what our son's doing. You know? Yeah. That's, that's really cool. You know, yeah, the, and you see the selfie of a student who's never touched an MA, you know, putting a picture on Facebook of, Hey, I ran a console today. Yeah. Do you, do you also have any kind of like maybe a more formal, like a, like an intern type of thing where you you'd actually take one of those students and put them on a, on a computer, you know, working on CAD programs, uh, you know, as part I, of a project. I don't have anything formal. The closest I've ever gotten to that is there was a young man, um, who was part of our church several years ago who you know, wanted to do what I do. Mm-hmm. And so he went along with me for a, uh, a festival one weekend. Yeah. And huh. basically I turned him over to my lighting team and, you know, the only directions they were given is don't break him. Yeah. Well, I know. And, and the young man has gone on to, oh man, from volunteering with me, um, he tours with, he's toured with Ringling Brothers, and I think he's on one of the Cirque du Soleil tours now. Wow. Jeez. That's really cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. I know that, you know, I talk to a lot of companies more on the secular side of things who, who say they would like to do a lot more of that kind of thing, but because of liability issues or potential liability issues they have to kind of shy away from it. So you're either on the books or you're off the books. There's no real in in between, you know? And, um, yeah, it's sad, but I understand it. I completely get it. We're hanging these big heavy rigs above people's heads and bad things can happen. So you mentioned you also get involved in a, in a charity. Um, what is that? Cause I would love to, you know, mention them. I would say the, the, the two where I've had my fingers lately um, is either Samaritan's Purse or Baptist Global Relief. Okay. They're both faith-based charities um, focused on um, basically emergency relief around the world. Great. Great. Um, I got to know Samaritan's Purse after the flood here in Nashville several years ago. Um, where they were part of assisting you know, homeowners who'd had their lives just torn apart. Right. Well, that's, and that's, you know, that's being amazing. a volunteer and seeing the way that they responded to, to families in need just you know, blew me away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you see, when you see this kind of devastation and I live in South Florida, so, you know, we get it via, via hurricanes way too often. Um, but it's so amazing to see the relief effort that is made both by organizations and by individuals. You know, like I, I you know, I know, for example, when I first moved here, Hurricane Andrew hit and uh, my wife and I were driving down every couple of days to these different supply 
outlets and delivering supplies, not getting supplies from them. We were delivering, you know, water or food or whatever it was that people needed and because they would announce it on television or something. And even that is, is, you know, really fun to be a part of and it's great to see it being distributed. You know, where I worry is when you see the organizations that are taking advantage or they're taking really high management fees and things like that where like, you know, 60 cents or 50 cents out of every dollar you donate ends up being used for the, the purpose that you thought and the rest is going to, you know, the company's management or overhead or whatever. Yeah, I, that, that's a legitimate concern. Yeah, those are the ones I shy away from. But uh, and, and what was cool about, like, when Samaritan's Purse was here, um, the first Saturday of going out to volunteer, a lot of the volunteers who showed up were from the production team at our church. Yeah. So you, you guys who'd shown up were used to hanging lights and repairing the electrical things around the church. Um, we're able to apply what we'd been doing together within the building to helping families around the area. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. So, um, have I missed anything like anything you wanted to bring up or mention? I tried to cover pretty much everything you've done in your career and, uh, you know, in a very summarized way, of course, cause I can't keep you on here all day, but, um, you know, very interesting stuff because uh, honestly my entire or most of my career, I've definitely done some church projects and sold an awful lot of gear to and from churches, uh, as they, you know, as technology movement happens and things like that. But, just all the nuances and things like working with volunteers, that was something that I didn't really know. And it just, it, it, uh, the more I think about it, the more it makes me understand how challenging that could be in certain situations. So yeah, it's all very interesting to hear. Well, and part of that, I mean, you're, you're pointing out the volunteer thing. Um, yes, it happens within the church itself, obviously. But the other thing is like, in the early days of Christian touring, um, your stagehands day to day were volunteers. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Oh yeah. So, you know, one day might be a large arena, uh, where it's all your know, professional stagehands. The next day might be all volunteers in a church. Oh boy. Again, my my concern always goes back to sort of a liability one, not not quality, but just, you know, some people know how to push gear up and down ramps and other people, you know, are going to get run over by a road case and fall backwards and smash their head or something. Um, did you ever run and into anything? And I think anything? my observation is the liability question is obvious. No, no question of that. Yeah. But in a way, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but in a way volunteers are kind of like hitting different stagehand pockets around the States. That's true. Yeah, that's true. You know, some stagehands are incredibly professional. You pay attention. They care about what they do. They're consummate professionals about everything they do. Others don't really pay attention. Yeah. And you wonder why are we paying you to be here? Right. Well, I think it's and like... And I, I don't mean to offend anybody, no, but, that's but it's the reality. it's like anything. There's good and bad, right? There's good and bad yep. car salespeople. You know, some give the... Some bad ones give the good ones a bad name and, and that kind of thing. And certainly... And the same I, things about volunteers. I mean, the... Yeah. Some volunteers, 
you really think a better job for them is holding down a chair so it won't move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, others would be at a professional stagehand level in terms of performance. Yeah. Well, I know one of my most frustrating things working in the, uh, on the manufacturing side in the lighting business, when we do trade shows, and this was in the past. Today, it, it's very different. But, you know, I'm talking 20 years ago doing a trade show with Martin when some of our booths were getting quite large and had lots of lights on them. Um, you were forced by the convention center to use their guys, their union guys, and quite or girls, and quite often these people were very good and would show up and would know exactly what they needed to do. Other times, we would actually pay them to sit on a chair and stay out of the way. And yep. we'd, we'd cut a deal with the union that said, for every one of our guys that, that is working on the booth, we'll hire one of your guys. Or for every two of ours, we'll hire one of yours. And um, they would literally either go and get us lunch or go and get a wrench when we needed them to or whatever, or they would just sit there on the chair and, you know, read a magazine. And, um, but then again, like I said, you know, they, they were balanced by some who were very good and who you'd almost want to hire away from that convention center to come work as part of your team, you know, but, yeah. uh, yeah. mix of both for sure. Well, I, I thank you very much, Andrew, for coming on and doing this. And, uh, you're quite welcome. It's my pleasure. I've certainly learned a whole bunch. And again, uh, Andrew's company is called Landrew Design in Nashville, Tennessee. You can certainly reach him there by Googling and all those types of things. And, uh, and I hope that everyone has enjoyed this. I know I certainly have. And Andrew, please reach out if there's anything we can ever do for you. I definitely will. Thank you so much. <laughs>